Well, tonight we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8, and uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive into this. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God, for your word. And Lord, I thank you that your word is practical, that you are a father who loves us so much that you give us instruction in your word that deals with the most practical things in our lives. And Lord, I pray this evening that you would just give grace through your spirit in helping me tonight to be able to communicate um, this passage in a way that would just really minister to our hearts, help us to see your heart, and at the same time, just give us instruction. And so we give you this time tonight now in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever had this experience where you hear a little noise coming from your car and you think, not a big deal, but something in you, you know, tells you that you should just, you know, go and get it checked out. So you take it to the mechanic and you find out that that little noise was actually the symptom of a much bigger problem. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You've experienced that. Or you have this little pain. Maybe it's in your back or some other part of your body and you decide to go to the doctor and he tells you that, hey, that little pain is actually the symptom of a much bigger problem. Well, in the passage that we're looking at tonight, Paul addressed what we might call a squeak in the church in Corinth. And the, 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 what, what some maybe would have looked at and considered a, a minor issue of believers in the church were taking other believers to court. It was actually, that problem was actually the symptom of something much worse. And that being that the Christians neither understood nor were living out the gospel. Let's go ahead and begin reading here in verse 1. Paul writes, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest of matters? Now, the ESV version translates that, translates the smallest of matters in this way, trivial cases. He says in verse 3, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you should go to law against one another. Why do you rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Pause there and give me your attention. Did you know that we have between 80 
to 90 million lawsuits that are filed every single year in this country. 80 to 90 million. 70% of the world's lawyers are here in America. 70%. And this litigious nature of our society has a way of creeping into the church of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what was happening in Paul's day and age. In the church here in Corinth, there were Christians who were actually suing one another. And that would make for a very awkward prayer meeting, wouldn't it? You know, you come together and guy leading the prayer meeting, anybody have anything to pray about? And one guy goes, yeah, I'm going to court tomorrow. Somebody's suing me. And then the, the next guy, you know, goes, yeah, I'm going to court tomorrow. I have to sue somebody. You know, I mean, how, how awkward that would that be, right? To experience that type of thing. Well, here's the question. Here's what we want to address tonight and look at tonight. How should Christians handle civil disputes? and business disputes, and personal matters of this nature. Is it wrong for Christians to take each other to court? We're going to answer that tonight. And tonight we're really going to answer that by unpacking this this passage. And I want to point out, point out tonight four reasons why going to court against another Christian should not be your first option. But before we get into this, I want to preface by saying this. Paul here is talking about disputes, civil disputes and sins. He's not talking about crimes. And it's important that we understand the difference. You know, if somebody professing to be a Christian commits a crime against you, especially if it's a serious crime, you have an obligation to notify the authorities. You need to do that out of protection for other people. We have an obligation to do that. That's what the authorities are there for. Listen, the church is not here to deal with crimes. That's what the police are for. So if in the instance, let's say, of of rape or molestation or murder or things like that, call the police. And you know what? If you don't, we will. If you come to us and say, hey, I need to uh, report this, you know, has happened, we're going to say, you know what, you need to call the police. And if you don't do that, I'm going to, or we're going to do that. In fact, I had, to, I had that happen in Oregon. There was a, a, a case of molestation going on in a family, and a guy called me and said, hey, this is happening in our family. I'm not sure what to do. And I told him, you need to call the police. And if you don't do that, I have to do that. I am going to do that. You need to do that. In situations like that, there's an obligation to report those type of things. But in civil matters... That's another issue. Don't call the police. Don't call the police to report somebody's gossiping, okay? (laughs) Because they're not going to answer. They're going to be like, what? What are you talking about, you know? Um, In civil type of disputes, don't call the police. Come to the church. So again, Paul here is dealing with not criminal matters, but more along the lines of civil disputes, civil court cases. This is what he means in verse 2 when he says, the smallest of matters, or as I said, the ESV translates it, trivial, trivial cases. So here's our, here's our outline for tonight. Four reasons why going to court against another Christian 
over civil matters should not be our first option. Point number one, because of our identity in Christ. Because of our identity in Christ. And I want you to notice that Paul refers to the identity of the believers two times as saints in verses one and two. Now, why does he use this word saints and not believers or Christians? He refers to them as saints. And some of you might be thinking, aren't saints dead people? Because that was what you were taught if you came, let's say, out of a Catholic tradition. I remember one little boy was at church with his mother, and it was a church that they had the stained glass windows with, you know, Bible characters in them. And, and uh, she asked her mom, who are the people, you know, in the window, in the glass? And, and his, her mom told her, those are the saints. So the week or so later, she's in Sunday school, and her Sunday school teacher asks, does anybody know what a saint is? And she quickly raised her hand and goes, I know, I know. And he goes, what is it? And she said, it's the people whom the light shines through. And you know, there's some truth to that. Because in reality, the Bible says that anyone who is a Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ, that the Lord refers to us as his saints. And Paul referred to them in his original introduction as saints. In fact, I want you to take your, keep your place here. Turn back to chapter 1 with me for a minute. Let's look at Paul's original introduction. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul writes, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, now catch this, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified, that means set apart in Christ, called to be saints, note that, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Now note this. One of Paul's strategies in dealing with the problems in the church of Corinth, we've talked about this already, that one of his strategies was to remind them of who they are in Christ, who they are in Jesus, that, that they are a redeemed people. And so he's reminding them of that. And this is the challenge that he's making to them in sort of an indirect way all throughout this book is he's challenging them to be who they are in Jesus instead of who they used to be in the flesh or they're prior to knowing Jesus. So here in chapter one, he reminded them, hey, you guys have been called to be saints. And the word saint means set apart ones. You see, these people, they were called out of something, just like you and I. They were called out of the world, and they were also called into something. They were called into the family of God. Notice what he says here. Called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul's saying here, look, you have been called out of the world and you have been called into the big C church. What's the big C church? It's all the believers. And that's why he says there, those with all in every place. 
with all the believers that are down in Cambodia with Kurt and Kendall and their family. We're all family. We, we're all called to be saints. We've been called out of the world and called into this thing called the family of God. And so the first thing that Paul's reminding them of is the fact that they are connected in this huge way. Now turn back to chapter 6. And I want you to notice... In verse 6, he he gives a similar note here about their family connection when he refers to them in verse 6 as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Brother going against brother, he's saying, this should not be. And what he's telling here is that they shared an intimacy of belonging to the same spiritual family. And get this, their loyalty to that family ought to outweigh their desire to not be defrauded. This is the point that he's making. So their first option should not be to go outside of the family to settle these disputes. So the first thing, reason that Paul gives here for this not being their first option of going to court in civil matters was because of their identity in Christ, number one. Number two, because of our future calling. In verses 2 through 5, it's very interesting as Paul lays out there that the saints, he uses that term again, are going to judge the world and the angels. Now, Paul seems to hear... to, to Paul seems to be here anticipating an objection from his listeners. And the objection would probably be, are we really competent? Maybe some of you are thinking that. Are we really competent to judge and to deal with legal and civil matters? And Paul wondered with sort of a note of sarcasm here in his voice if the Corinthians had forgotten. Hey guys, did you guys forget? We're going to one day judge the world and we're even going to be judging the angels. Now Paul's referring to something here that Jesus discussed in Matthew chapter 19 verse 28. And it's there in that passage Jesus says something regarding the apostles how they're going to set on they're going to sit on 12 thrones and they are going to judge with Jesus they're going to judge the world now we we might look at that and go well, wait a minute isn't that just in reference to you know the apostles and yes they are going to have a a special role i think in the in the judgment but here's what's interesting in Daniel chapter 7 verse 22 as well as in Revelation chapter 20 verse 4 in both of those passages it extends this idea of our reigning with Christ and judging with Christ to all believers. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter, first, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, we have this promise that if we endure, we shall also reign with him. So on the basis of the church's future role in such important matters, Paul is arguing here that the body of Christ should be competent to handle these trivial cases, to judge in these trivial matters, in these things regarding worldly disputes between Christians, things that are pertaining to this life. Now, I know for some, and if you've experienced this, Lawsuits may not seem trivial when there's large sums of money involved. 
And I know that kind of, you know, anytime we hit, hit, you know, where the pocketbook is, that gets a little bit, you know, uncomfortable. And maybe you've gone through something like that. But I think this is Paul's point, is that such disputes are trivial when compared to the weightiness of the final eternal judgment, when compared to the weightiness of what's coming. Now, here's the question, though. Okay, I get it, Rob. I get what you're saying. We're going to rule and reign. We're going to be judging with Jesus in his millennial reign. But why would that make us equipped to judge now? I don't understand what Paul is saying here. I get it afterwards. We're going to be glorified. We're going to come back with Jesus after the the rapture of the church, and we're going to be glorified. And the Bible says we're going to know all things. So so I, I, I I get that, but what about now? Well, I think the answer to that question really points back to what Paul has already said to them back in chapter 2. I want you to turn there now. As Paul in chapter 2, if you remember, he, he contrasts the wisdom of God with the wisdom of the world. And in that contrast that he's making in chapter 2, the point that he's making is that, guys, we should think differently because we've been called out of the world, because of our connection to God, and because we have the wisdom of God. In fact, look at verse uh, 6 of chapter 2. He says, however, we speak wisdom among those who who are mature, Yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And in that, we talked about this back in chapter 2, about you know the reference there was to the wisdom of the whole gospel message of how God, in his wisdom, had sent Jesus to come and, and redeem mankind and to create this brand new family family of Jews and Gentiles, and this you know, was the wisdom of God, and had the rulers of the age and the religious, had they really, really understood that, Paul says they wouldn't have crucified Jesus, but they didn't get it. They didn't understand it, because spiritual, uh, spiritual things are only discerned by spiritual people. So Paul's reminding them of the wisdom of God and the ways of God are different from the world. But look at verse 12, he says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may, might know the things that have, easily, have been freely given to us by God. And I think what Paul's saying here in chapter 2 applies to this argument. That we have received the wisdom of God through the Spirit of God and through the Word of God. And it's that wisdom that can enable us to discern these matters now. That can help us to deal with these type of things as we're seeking to look at what the Scriptures say and be people that are seeking to walk in the Spirit. Now, that argument that Paul is making would also infer that the secular law of the land enacted by unbelievers was actually inferior to the wisdom of God in judging disputes, especially between Christians. You see, as Christians, we understand that the gospel is supremely wise because the gospel includes things like unity, 
in Christ and forgiveness, which, which worldly standards of justice just ignore all of that. Therefore, the secular law of unbelievers is not equipped to deal with these disputes between Christians. This is the, the point that Paul is making. An unbelieving human law simply does not reflect the true wisdom and godliness and justice of God. So, taking another believer to court in civil matters should not be our first option. Number one, because of our identity in Christ. Number two, because of our future calling. And number three, we see in verses six and seven, because of our witness to the world. Look at verse six again. He says, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why does Paul say that this is an utter failure? Here's why. Because it's a poor witness. This is the point that he's making. When Christians are considering to pursue arbitration or mediation or, or um, secular jurisprudence, they should first consider what the best interest, what's in the best interest of the gospel. And what's in the best interest and how it's going to reflect upon Jesus. And what kind of reflection is it going to have upon the church? Because what Paul is wanting us to understand here is anyone who brings a lawsuit against another person, they intend to win, right? When somebody goes to, to, to court, they're, they're, I'm going to court tomorrow, I hope I lose. No, they're going to court, they want to win, right? They want to win that settlement. But because public lawsuits between Christians damage the church's witness and reputation, those who practice, those who do that, cannot win. I mean, you might win the case, but the gospel loses. And our Christian witness loses. You know, you say to somebody, Hey, you should come to church with me. You know, you really need to be a Christian. And they're like, dude, I was like in the court during that court case. You and that other guy in your church, I mean, that, that was brutal. Why, why would I want to go with you? Why would I want to be, you know, a part of your thing? I mean, you're just like us. That's the point that Paul's making here is we lose our ability to impact the world. So, Taking another believer to court in civil matters should not be our first option. Number one, because of our identity in Christ. Number two, because of our future calling as believers. Number three, because of our witness to the world. And finally, number four, because there is a higher law of love that we are called to live by. Look at the uh, second part of verse seven. Paul says this. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. The fact that there were lawsuits in the church demonstrated the fact that the Corinthians had lost sight of some of the most precious principles that they were called to live by. You see, Jesus taught his church that we were to walk in the law of love, that that superseded 
everything else. In fact, James, in James chapter 2, it says this, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I like how he says that. The royal law. The kingly law. Jesus is all about his kingdom. He calls us to be a part of his kingdom. And James says in his kingdom, there's this royal law. And the royal law is the law of love. That you should love your neighbor as yourself. That you should treat your neighbor the way that you hope that they would treat you. Remember Jesus said in John 13, 35, And by this they'll know that you are my disciples. How? By your love. Someone says, but wait, wait, Pastor Rob, what about my rights? Right? We're all about that, right? What about my rights? My rights. Jesus taught and exemplified that we should be willing to die to our rights in order to bless others. Isn't that what Paul refers to in Philippians chapter 2? When he says this, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others, how? As better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take the interest of others too. That's the problem that we all face though, right? We're all consumed about our interests, my rights and my way and what's, what's best for me. And Jesus is saying, no, I want to teach you a completely different way to live. A way where you're other-centered. This is, this is you know, how I live. This is what I do. This is what I'm calling you to. And that's why Paul then says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And then he, he gives, here's his example. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God was something that he needed to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Paul says, let that attitude, let that mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who left heaven, who laid down. He allowed his, his authority as God, his, his, the glory uh, to be concealed in his humanity. And he made himself subject as a man, just like you and I, to his father that he might serve and serve to the point of going to the cross where he could die the ultimate death so that he could give and impart to us the ultimate life. Remember what Jesus said? If anyone wants to be my disciple, they need to deny themselves and pick up their cross and follow me. What is he talking about there? The cross, when he says pick up the cross, it's a symbolic for dedicating our lives to seek to live in the same manner as Jesus in our relationships. That's why in marriage, guys, the Lord says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church in that he gave himself for her. What's he saying? You pick up your cross. You die. You die to your rights. In, in our friendships, Paul talks about in Philippians of our preferring others with our enemies that he says that we're to love them and to forgive them. In Galatians, Paul said this, for you, brethren, have been called 
to liberty, only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. This is what, what Paul's saying here. That we are called to a higher law. The law of love. And in the law of love, we're seeking to serve one another. And for these reasons, and to protect the church, and to protect the gospel, Paul says, look, it would be better for you to be wronged and to be cheated than to struggle and to fight with one another. Now, I know that that's a hard pill to swallow, what Paul's saying here, that this is tough. But I, I want to encourage you in this. If we are going to be those who are seeing the big picture, the big picture of that we are a part of Christ's kingdom, that we are a part of, of the kingdom that he is, has come to a, establish, and that kingdom that begins now, and we're going to see the culmination of it when Jesus comes back at his second coming. If we are to see the big picture of the whole purpose of the gospel and the cause of Christ, I think this makes perfect sense when we look at it through that lens, from that perspective. So taking another brother to court in civil matters should not be our first option, number one, because of our identity in Christ, number two, because of our future calling as believers that we're going to judge the world, we're going to judge angels, we're going to rule and reign with Christ, and so the Lord has equipped us through His Spirit and through the Word to do that. Number three, because of our witness to the world. And number four, because there's a higher law of love that we are called to live by. Now, here's the question. What does this look like practically in the church? Because right now, we can hear this and go, okay, I got it. Theory. What does it look like in the church? Well, to look at this practically, I want you to turn now to Matthew chapter 18. Because I think what we see in Matthew chapter 18 is really the beginning stages of what Paul's talking about here. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to start reading in verse 15. Jesus says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. So he sins against you. He defrauds you. He does something, you know, in a, in a civil kind of way that, you know, wrongs you. Jesus says, you go to him. And if he hears you, and he's like, man, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. I need to, I should pay you back, whatever. Jesus says, that's great. You've, you, it's done. It's resolved. You've gained your brother. But then in verse 16 says, but if he will not hear... Take with you two, one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So take some brothers and sisters with you who can hear the matter, who can weigh in on it. And then he says, And if he refuses to hear them, then tell it to the church. And what he means by hear the church is take it to the leadership. Now, I will, I will say this. In all the years that I have been involved in ministry, it's been a long time. 
I'll say this, that points one and two are often bypassed in situations like this. They don't go to their brother and try to resolve it. They, they don't, you know, take a couple of it. They go straight to the church. Pastor Rob, you should see what someone did to me. And, you know, and they, and they want to complain. And when someone comes to me and does that, I, I say, I turn to Matthew 18 and I go, Kayla, did you go to them? Well, no. Well, you need to go do that. And they're like, well, yeah, I did, but they wouldn't listen to me. Okay, did you take a couple brothers and sisters who could come and, you know, weigh in on this and listen to No. Well, you need to go do that. You see, we, Jesus is giving us a process here because just like we were talking about last week in the situation with the church discipline in chapter 5, the goal is always restoration. That's the heart. The, 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 Jesus wants to see us connected and unified. So the goal is always restoration. But notice here what Jesus said. If he doesn't hear you and he will not listen to other brothers and sisters, and, and then you go to the church... And you go to the leaders, and if he doesn't listen to them, Jesus says, but if he refuses even to hear the church, the leadership, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, a lot of people take this to mean that we're supposed to then kick them out of the church. That that's all of a sudden our our doorway to excommunicate them. I believe that's the wrong interpretation. And here's why. How are we supposed to treat heathens and tax collectors? Let me ask you this question. How did Jesus treat them? Jesus loved them. He reached out to them. Remember, Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and Jesus came to his town in Jericho and sees Zacchaeus up in the tree and says, Zacchaeus, come down, because I'm going to go to your, We're having lunch today at your house. You're cooking. I'm coming, you know? And Zacchaeus, he wasn't a believer. He was a rotten, heathen tax collector. In fact, the religious leaders were like, he's having lunch with that guy? Why? You know, That's how they looked at it. Jesus loved them. He reached out to them. He prayed for them. He sought to win them to the gospel. So I think Jesus is saying, treat them like an unbeliever because this is a heart issue. It's a soul issue. But I think what Jesus, when he lays this out, take him to the the church, the leadership, I think this idea then gets communicated by the leadership where they say to this person, look, you are wrong. And it's your pride, your arrogance, your hard-heartedness that you can't see that. So we're going to treat you like an unbeliever. We're going to pray for you that your heart will change. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't come to church here. It's not what we're saying. But here's what it does mean. You can't serve. You can't minister. You can't be involved in, in, in leadership and, and that type of thing because that's how we treat unbelievers. We're here and we're hoping that their hearts change. But we want them to be here. We want to be a part of the family. And here's what's interesting. When you then take what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 18 and apply that to what we just were reading about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I think it's really, really interesting because I think if you followed Matthew 18 and they refused to follow the instruction of the leadership and Jesus says, so then treat them like a heathen and a tax collector, I think he's also saying that it would be fine in that case then to take them to court. 
If there's no other option and they won't listen and they're just hardening their heart, then you might need to do that. Let me give you an example. Let's say in a situation where somebody's being defrauded. And, you know, you went to that person and they won't hear you. And you took some brothers and they wouldn't hear you. And they come to the leadership and they, they wouldn't hear them. And the leadership says, you know, you're wrong. You need to make restitution. And let's say that person's just like, no way. Man, I'm not going to do that. I just I can't, I can't do that. Well, we would say, okay, we're going to treat you like an unbeliever. And in, there have been instances where I have said, you know, to somebody in a situation like this, you know, you, you, I'm not saying you, telling you to do this, but I'm saying that you should pray because this you might need to take them to court. You might need to do that. But again, it's the last resort, not the first resort. It's the last option, not the first option. Now, somebody would argue and say, but Pastor Rob, that's a lot of steps. That's a lot of time. I don't want to wait for that. Well, listen, if you are going to live like Jesus, that's a part of the sacrifice that he calls us to. And just think about this. What a testimony in the court of law that it would be to be able to get up and say, this is everything that I have done in trying to make this right with this individual. I've been to, you know, you pull up friends. These guys have been a part of this. I've approached him several times. He wouldn't listen. I took him to the leadership of our church. They can testify to to this. I mean, I think that that would be a testimony to unbelievers and going like, man, you, you bent over backwards to try to make this right with this person. Because that just doesn't happen very often in our world today. So as we close tonight, this problem of suing other believers was a symptom of a greater problem in Corinth. The believers in Corinth had forgotten about their identity in Christ, that they were saints, that they were were people who had been called out of the world. They'd been called out of something and they'd been called into something, the family of God. They were brothers. They had forgotten about their future calling and their present equipping, that they had been filled with the Spirit of God and given the wisdom of God through the Word of God. They had forgotten about their calling to be a witness to the world, and they had forgotten that they were called to walk in a higher law, the law of love, to love one another the way that Jesus loves us and the way that jesus loved us was to sacrifice for us and i say this to you and i tonight may we not be guilty of making the same mistake that they did but may we be a community of believers who are gospel-centered who are Jesus-focused, that we want Jesus to be the center of our church, of our families, and all of our relationships, that we're looking at everything through that lens of, how would Jesus handle this? How would Jesus take care of this? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And God, we want to tonight just check our hearts. 
Because, Lord, it's easy for us to get focused on me. My rights. My interests. My needs. My wants. And sometimes, Lord, that self-focus just can blind us from seeing what is really your heart and your way. And Lord, in this world, especially here in the United States, where people are so happy, God, I pray that we would be a group of people who would walk in that law of love above everything else. That we would allow you to lead us. That we would seek to be sensitive to your spirit. That we, Lord, would even be willing for the sake of the gospel to be defrauded, to be cheated, as to not smear your name. Lord, I pray that we would be a group of people who are committed to your will and your way that we, Lord, pray tonight as you taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in vista as it is in heaven, in each one of our families, your will, your way be done in each of our lives as it is in heaven. And we just give you this time, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.